Good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning to share with you from God's Word. Um, if we could, being a grammar teacher, I have to punctuate everything, so let's punctuate the moment with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, privilege of being your sons and daughters. Give us wisdom now, we pray, through your word. Give us strength through your spirit that we may embrace the life that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We just celebrate all of these good things through him and for your glory and too for our joy and advancement in faith. Amen. We might call this whole section of uh, Luke the temptation a a dangerous allegiance a dangerous allegiance the question is though where are we tying dangerous is it that an allegiance with God is dangerous or is it that an allegiance with Satan is dangerous and the answer is yes okay? both of them will be certainly true this, this section of scripture, this pericope, is, we might say, a wonderful, sterling example of what James 4.7 tells us. Subject yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James is able to say that because he understands that this is a tried and proven method. But if we focus on the method aspect too much, we're going to miss some very important things. That at the heart of the method is an incredibly passionate heart toward God that refuses to negotiate with sin. That's, that's what we see in Christ. It's not just the information that will help us out. The Bible's full of information. Much of it we do not follow. In spite of sermons and Bible studies, much of it we do not follow. Because in difficult moments, the heart tries to do what the heart wants to do. You know what I mean. You've heard, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, until you get into a disagreement with your spouse. Then you go with the theology... First strike. Now, all you military guys will appreciate that. Okay? The best defense is what? A good offense. Knock the, knock the enemy out, and then um, life is a whole lot better. And it's challenging down off in there, isn't it? Because in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the flesh speaks, it speaks quickly, it speaks loudly, and very persuasively. So this, this idea of devotion to God cannot be a last-minute engagement. It's a, the, the theology of what you do with an umbrella. You, you don't walk into the rain and then let the umbrella up. That's usually not the idea. The goal is not to get wet, so when you're standing on the front porch or in the car, you usually you know, stick it out of the door, then let it up because you, you are trying to be prepared for the moment. And what we will see here is Jesus' preparation for the moment starts not with just a plan of action, 
Because as we see here, Satan knows scripture too. James says um, that the, the demons hear the, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. He said they hear that, that the Lord is first, that the Lord is one. He said, and at least they shake. They have some galvanic response. So it's not just method. Because we'll, we'll see that because Jesus is going to respond two times when um, each time Satan tries to tempt him, Jesus is quoting from Scripture. And the third time, Satan's going to say, okay, let me try this one. Okay, I'll quote from the Scripture and here's why you should do it and your Bible says so. But Jesus' response is going to be, no. I don't interpret the word like that. I interpret it through a non-negotiating alliance to my Father. My, my starting place is different. It's not just the using of Scripture. It's not just the applying of the Word. It is a passion for God's will that would lead me to uncomfortable places for His glory. And I will be grown through it. Even if suffering is involved, the glory of God, his first placeness, is worth it. All of that is at work in this experience. And the good Dr. Luke is really trying to help us see what exactly we have. Because this Jesus that we're reading about is not a, he's not a by and by, pie in the sky God. He has taken up residence in my heart and in yours. For when you believed, you received the Spirit of Christ. And he wants to be busy in your life and in my life and in our lives communally. This, this is part of our spiritual DNA that Christ lives within us. And we have a calling, calling to incarnate that, to make it visible. That this Jesus that we're going to read about here has now taken residence in us is huge. We, we cannot underestimate that reality. Or I should say we should not. But we often do. Let's take a look, see here, at, at kind of what's going on in the context here. Um, three themes that come up right away. One, the issue of sonship, because Satan is going to bring it up twice. In the first and third temptations, he's going to say, if you are the son of God. Now, that stands there in light of chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3 is huge. Chapter 3, verse 20, 22, where uh, God says, uh, a revelation there at the baptism uh, if you are, excuse me, not if, but you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, that's the statement going out before we come to chapter 4. But we have to understand what's going on in chapter 3. There, an identification ceremony is going on. People are coming out at the preaching of John the Baptist 
to, to identify with the Lord's coming. And Jesus is coming to identify with them in their need, in their state of weakness and spiritual destitution. He is coming to identify with them. And there Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not because Jesus doesn't already have the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's how he's in the world in the first place. He's not receiving the Holy Spirit because he needs the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do. But he's receiving it to be marked as an emissary. As a, as a special messenger, an apostle, if you will, a saliach in Aramaic, a, a, a sent one from God for a very special mission. And there the Spirit comes upon Jesus. The Spirit doesn't make him the Christ at that point. He already is, but it's a necessary part of the redemptive mission that Jesus is on. Because as we watch this spirit theology, the spirit of Panuma, the, the idea of Panuma throughout Luke and Acts, we're going to see something special. The spirit comes and he abides on Jesus. And everywhere Jesus goes, there the spirit is. All the way to the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension, and then on Pentecost... What does Jesus give his people? The spirit that's been everywhere that Jesus has been. It is both our birth certificate and a death certificate. Because it brings to us all of the benefits of the final and definitive conclusive work of Jesus on the cross, paying for our sins, but also he brings to us an eternal Sunday morning. A day that simply will not quit. A radical new life. A radical new relationship with God. A, a, a purpose-drivenness, if you will. My argument is always, there's only one pur- pur- purpose-driven life that belongs to Jesus. See, I, I don't come up with another purpose. The, the purpose is to glorify God, to obey Him, to enjoy Him forever. There is no other purpose for a human being. How you do that is different. Okay? I'd, I'd like to do it as an independently wealthy billionaire. But, okay, that, that's not my calling. But if it were, and that comes with challenges, because then you can afford sins that most people cannot. Um, if it were, though, that would be my place. That would be my place. So we, we see this issue there of the, the spirit and the sonship. Now, this sonship matter is, is important too. If you look at the very last verse of chapter 3, it's tracing the genealogy of Jesus. And, and for Luke, it's important to see that Jesus is representative and king for all humanity. humanity. So rather than going back to Abraham, as Matthew does, because it's important to establish the covenant lineage of Jesus. So Abraham and David are going to be the two big points there in Matthew. But in, in Luke here, he goes all the way back to Adam, and then he refers to Adam as um, uh, Adam Tufeu, 
Adam, the son of God. And then chapter 4 starts with here's the son of God, part 2. It's the sequel. It's the one that's different from the first song. He's setting us up here, uh, Luke is, to to make us think Genesis 3 thoughts. And really Genesis 1, 2 and 3 thoughts. Because you've got this kind of um, reworking of a Charles Dickens idea. The tale of two cities? No, the tale of two Adams. The first Adam and the second Adam. And we know the story of the first Adam. Why? Because that's why we have the second Adam. Because the, the story doesn't end in this marvelous explosion of praise and bliss for God in the end. That's not how the Old Testament ends. It ends expecting something else. It's an unfinished story. It's not even right to call it the Old Testament because it makes it sound like it's antiquated and not usable. It's just an unfinished story. And the story has to end in the gospel. That's the only way that there can be any sequels to follow the first movie. The story has to end. The narrative. So here's the second Adam. Remember, we already have the confession from heaven. This is my beloved son with you. You are my beloved son. I'm sorry. With you, I am well pleased. And we want to go, why is that? Chapter 4 is going to tell us. Because here, Jesus begins to replay Old Testament history. He's going to be a son of God, like Adam is a son of God. But Adam has a garden. Jesus has a wilderness. And he's also going to be a representative of Israel. In other words, it's like this. The whole episode of the temptation, both in the wilderness with Israel and with Adam, Luke 4 is trying to say, okay, it was supposed to go something like this. Okay, when Satan would come and say, uh, okay, if you're the son of God, look, you've got needs, man, and you've got the power to take care of your needs, do so. And then, of course, uh, Jesus fires back with, uh, no, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God shall a man live. live. That's the test. Because true life is relationship with the Father, not just physical existence. That's where we're messed up. That's the idea of bios in Greek, or bios, we get that idea of biology from it. It's not zoe. It's not the just biological life. It is life as a function of relationship with God. It's where God is our life. Colossians tells us that Christ is our life and when Christ is revealed, so also our lives will be. There is an indissoluble connection between those realities. They are so much so that they are the same. It's a symbiotic relationship that I'm designed now not to be able to exist comfortably without Jesus. John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot have life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, 
Let's talk about the concept of nothing. Okay? Nothing means what? Nothing. Right? Okay? You go to the grocery store and you have absolutely no money. You go in, you come out with nothing. Right? It's the baseball playoffs. You're expecting the Rangers pitching to produce something. But what do you get? Nothing. See, this? See how this works? You have three boys in the house and you have cookies sitting on the counter. Late at night, you go there to the cookie jar for something to eat, a cookie. And you find what? Nothing. Even the crumbs have been removed. If the house had bugs, the bugs would die of starvation. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing means nothing in terms of pleasing my father. That's the criteria. So I don't want your morals. Oh, we do good things. He says, no, yeah, I understand that. And Jesus is saying, I'm all about good morals. I'm all about good things and good works. But my question is, from whence do they come? They are for whose glory and pleasure? Because if I'm involved in this, all of your works and labors are sanctified by my presence. And even your sins are covered because I'm with you. And every time you take communion and you ingest those elements, that's to remind you, I'm here. The cross still works. The resurrection still works. My reign still works. My forgiveness still works. I'm here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. With me, I can't even talk about the things that are possible. There are so many. That's the son who's in the wilderness now. It's, it's interesting that chapter 3, the Spirit comes and remains on Jesus. And the first thing that he does is to lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Because the Spirit has a mission too. He leads Jesus in the, the wilderness to demonstrate what a true test of fidelity to God looks like. Now, the, the word argo is the word for lead. Um, that root is going to be used two times with Satan leading Jesus somewhere. He tries to lead Jesus to places and say, look, you can have all this stuff if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus doesn't even consider the stuff. He just says, no, that would require defection. That would be a mutinous relationship. That would make me your vassal king and you the great suzerain king who has authority over all things and to whom I owe my allegiance and, and, and even my engagement in warfare if he needs me. That would put you in that position. And I'm sorry, but you, you don't... That's way above your pay level as a fallen angel. I will not give that to you in any way. I don't have to negotiate for things that are already mine. All of these things were created by me and for me for the glory of my Father. I have come to evict you. You have improperly seized territory that is designed for me and you have to go. 
If I remain faithful to the Father, all of this will be given to me. I don't even have to fight for it. You will lose because I will submit. So, whoa, that's huge. You will lose because I will submit. You see, all of redemptive history, the course of history, is riding on Christ's obedience. It is obedience that stems for an affection with God. This is why the Shema says what it does. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. It starts the commentary for the Ten Commandments as they're repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. Period. And we can take the next phrase, Va'ahavta, it Adonai Eloheka. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. And Uf called Mildecha with every last drop of what you are. That is your defining characteristic. We are lovers of God. Wouldn't that be wonderful if the church really knew this and embraced it? Wherever we went, whatever we did, we are lovers of God. This is our calling. This is our design. This is what our redemption is for, is to love God through the power of the indwelling Son, who will not and has not, nor ever will, negotiate with sin. Jesus, full of the Spirit. This is an interesting phrase. Full of the Spirit. Whenever you see this, this, this idea of um, pleres ponumatos in Luke's word, I, I, I say it like this. When it says someone is full of the Spirit, that means they have a dangerous allegiance with God. They are some hard-headed, God-loving people. We, we see this same phrase referring to Stephen later on in Acts. Remember Stephen? The, the, the deacon, uh, as we might call him, full of the Spirit, working signs and miracles, and just so delighted, so precious in his love for God, that remember when Stephen was stoned, Jesus stood up. As Stephen saw Christ there sitting at the right hand, Jesus stood up to honor him. A dangerous affection that gets him killed at the hands of a young, very ambitious, upwardly mobile Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who later himself gets that same disease. That I might be found in him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own, but something that purely comes from God through Christ Jesus. That's where I want to be. And whatever you do with my life, know that if it's for the pleasure of God, have at it. If we're not careful, this will change the way we actually live and function. If we're not careful, this affection will grow in us. And of course, you know what I mean. We shouldn't be careful with this type of thing. It's the type of thing we should want to invite in. 
Jesus, full of the Spirit, which means he is ready to engage. Turns from the Jordan where he had been baptized and he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tested uh, by the devil. And I think that this is a 40 day period. What we might see here is kind of the last three temptations. So in other words, someone has been in his ear uh, all of this time saying, you know what? I remember you when you had glory before. I mean, you were like gleaming and shining and I mean, angels did things for you. It it must be kind of embarrassing to have this kind of demotion. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking if I was second person of the Trinity, I wouldn't want to come down here and do this. I mean, it's messy. I mean, you're around human beings and they get diseases and this and that and and they have nasty attitudes and they're not faithful. I mean, it says, look, I have a kingdom whole full of them. They're not even faithful to me. If I were you, I wouldn't take this. In the second, excuse me, second chapter of Philippians, it describes Jesus as obedient to death, even the death of a criminal execution. That's what the cross is. That the Son of God would be caught dead, dressed as a human being. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Adonai, the covenant-keeping God. Because of his radical humility, his unwillingness to negotiate with sin or to seek after his own interests, but living for the interest of God in all that he does, God highly exalted him. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due time he will exalt you. We have a hard time waiting on in due time, don't we? We want exaltation immediately as though God has to pay us. Faithfulness to God is the blessing in and of itself. That there is a prize that comes with this is a marvelous thing. But I'm reminded, I was in this church once and I saw this little plaque on the wall and it read, When what's shown from a ground so far, um, when what's shown from afar so grand turns to ashes in the hand, once again the glory lies in the struggle, not the prize. The prize comes for the struggle, not the other way around. They don't give you a purple heart in the military and then tell you to go bleed. That that little metal says, I survived something. In a quest to do something noble for something greater than myself, I survived something. They don't hand those out for KP duty. Oh, I was cutting some potatoes and, and I sliced my finger open. 
Say, well, go down there and get you, I mean, heck, man, forget Purple Heart. We're going to give you the Congressional Medal of Honor because you fought off a whole batch of potatoes with cheese. They were au gratin. So he's led into the wilderness where Israel was before. When you get time, go back and look at the early parts of Deuteronomy 8, and particularly the first three verses, where the Lord says, I led you there on purpose, so that you would be hungry. I, I put you there, Israel, so you would be hungry, so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from my mouth. But you grumbled and you complained. And you started telling Moses how great Egypt was. Oh, it was a marvelous place. Remember the marvelous fruit, the vegetables, and you know, all of the things to do on Friday nights. All of a sudden, they, they have a total reconstruction of, of Egypt. You know, oh, remember the wonderful pillows? No, your pillows were made out of straw. Remember the straw that you had to go find to make the bricks? They were led there. Because God had a purpose in taking things away to teach them that he must be first. Jesus has two great marks in his ministry. One place, both of them a place of temptation. One place where he has nothing. He, he's taken, everything is taken from him. And then the second place is at the end of history where all things are subjected to his feet. Everything. The only thing not is God himself. And he could keep that. You know, what an opportunity. He is truly the man who has everything. What do you get him for Christmas? So, well, what we get him a crab nebula or like a, a black hole, something about 66, you know, light years across. You know, it sucks everything in. He'll really love it. It'll go right there next to that other set of galaxies that he has. He already has that. So what do you give the man who, gives every, who has everything? And, and Christ would look at all of us and say, wrong question. What does the man who now has everything give the Father? And the answer is, everything, starting with me. You are being made in my image. It's a challenge to give God everything. It really is. Because we, we start with a list of things that we would like to keep control over. And, and for a lot of us, it's not even stuff. It's attitudinal issues. It's, it's what we do with our mouths to, to conform and shape people into the image that we want them. It's what we do in denying people God-given rights to be loved in the way that the kingdom warrants that that love should be given. To hold back our forgiveness. You know, when someone does something wrong to you and then they figure it out finally, and then they forgive you and then you kind of don't want to reconcile? Because in that moment, you got power. And, and sulking is a marvelous tool. Because now the shoe is on the other foot. No, the shoe is in my hand and I can pound you with it. Because I have the advantage now. But when you have a heart that says, 
something to you like this. Is this pleasing God? Does, does this moment here, or are you resisting sin? Because if you're not, okay, there are going to be repercussions for this. Oh no, I'm saved in Jesus. I, I, I won't be in, in the hellfires. Well, there's a whole lot of things that can go on between now and then. Do you really want this chaos in your home? In your life, in your marriage, in your friendships? In your church? Because there are ramifications and consequences that come with this type of disobedience. Where you have the illusion of control because you have psychological power over someone. Just like Satan. All of this stuff is mine and I can give it to you. If you fall down and worship me, Jesus is going to go, you've got to be kidding. I mean, crack hasn't even been invented yet, man, but, but you're on the pipe. <laughs> that, 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 that this is yours? If this is yours, why are you concerned about me? Why are you concerned about me? Jesus is full of the Spirit. He's there 40 days. 40 is a significant number. In the life of Moses, there are a whole lot of 40s. It's a, it's a period of testing. Israel is in the wilderness, remember, 40 years. And they tried God's patience there. It was by divine will, okay, that, that there was anything called Deuteronomy. I mean, if I'm in charge of this and so just saying, okay, God says, Elliot, you're going to handle them. I say, oh, this will be really easy because we're going to need like Genesis part two right after Numbers. Because the area where Israel was is going to be flat, dusty and glowy in the dark. Okay, we're just going to start all over. And a couple of times, remember, God threatened to do this and, and Moses had to say, no, wait, wait. If you do this, everyone will say that you're an angry God and that you do this. And God is going to say, exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. But I need for you to buy into this too. But Jesus will be our Moses figure. Who stands before God and says, wait, we can do something with him. A marvelous and wonderful thing that takes the, the deserts, that demonic place in their heart, and converts them to a paradise for you to dwell. And you can find a home in them. And the Father says, absolutely. That is our plan. Forty days. And Satan comes to him at a vulnerable moment. When the flesh wants to eat. The text says Jesus ate nothing in those days. And when they completed, he was hungry. In verse 3 it says, And then Satan speaks to him. If you are the Son of God. Now we have to understand what's going on here. In Greek this is called a first class condition. And it means if and let's assume this true. The text doesn't tell us where Satan was relative to what happened in chapter 3 when the heavens are open and this voice comes and says, You are my beloved son. But you, you have to think that he knows it. 
So he's going to challenge Jesus to exercise divine prerogatives and privilege. But in order to do that, Jesus has to defect. So even with the wherewithal to exercise power, to make things happen the way that he needed them to for his own comfort, he refused to do so. And see, that's our challenge too. See, Adam has a different type of power. He has all of these fruit trees around him. He's got the power to satisfy his hunger. But he wants something more than just feeding would supply. See, Genesis 1 should be understood through, understood through what I call a Torah lens. The nation of Israel will receive ten commandments. Adam will receive one. There's a one word Torah. Don't eat from the tree. That's the, this is the, the, the stipulation of the covenant here that I have with you. An agreement with God with stipulations. And the discourse that Adam should have given the serpent back is, excuse me, but man shall not live by fruit trees of any type. If tomorrow morning God says, all of the trees are off limits, I don't eat. And anyway, if I'm to grow up in my being image of God, I've got to pass this test. This is an allegiance issue. And in any way, I'm already made in the image of God. But if my eyes are opened in a different way with the image, I've corrupted everything. But at the heart, I've corrupted a covenant relationship with my maker. You see, I am made for his glory. Who, Boy, Genesis 4 would read different. Then you wouldn't get all this murder and family, you know, domestic violence. You wouldn't have Cain having worship problems with God and he takes it out on Abel because Abel does the right thing. And that becomes society. And then you multiply that times billions and you get the world that we have now. That's the problem. Quickly here. He leads Jesus into the wilderness. Three things. He is tempted to hunger. He is tempted to power. And then finally, he is tempted to test God and just say, let's just try it and see. Throw yourself off of this um, steeple here and uh, the, the pinnacle. It's like a 450 foot fall. And let's see, Satan says now, let's use the Bible. You've been doing it. I can use it now. Let's see if the angels will bear you up. And Jesus responds there, no, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Man shall live by what proceeds out of the mouth of God. You will worship the Lord and Him alone. So no, the nations of the world, I, I don't need that. They're going to be mine anyway. And, and finally, I don't test God. Let's just see. There, there are people who have whole theologies to say, let's do wild and crazy things like 
dancing with snakes. You know, Shimana Tatanka Owachi, I get, dances with wolves. Dancing with snakes, no. Doesn't make for a good movie. People keep dying in the first act. So Jesus refuses. And then on the final note, it says that Satan left him for a more opportune time. Another moment of weakness when he could come back and say, Hey, if you're the son of God, show everyone your power. Come down from that cross. And this time, Jesus doesn't even answer it. Except with this. I'll talk to you on Sunday morning. When I start my mission to create a whole race of people. who will love being allegiant to my Father and I'll grow them and I'll be patient with them. I'll create church communities where they will flourish in this. He said, you think it was a problem with me? This is going to be like a virus in your world. And everywhere my gospel is proclaimed, they will submit to it, they will hold on to it and they will live for my Father. And they will resist you and you will flee. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. ask you to give us grace in these words to remember them, to live them, and to celebrate your reign for your glory, for our joy and advancement in the faith. We pray these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.